Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Global Geek News Podcast. This is episode number 24 of the Global Geek News Podcast. As always, I am your host, Jeremy Bray, alongside my co-host, Wesley Faulkner. How's it going, Wesley? Things are going great. Awesome day. Yeah, I'm sure it was at AMD after hearing about Intel. Oh, what happened with Intel? Ah, we'll get into that later. But let's just say it involves them, the European Union, and a $1.45 billion fine. But not only do we have Wesley on the show, as usual today, but we also have somebody new on the show. Kevin Hustler, who is the newest blogger on the Global Geek News blog. How's it going, Kevin? Hello, I'm doing well. I had a busy day, but I'm still here. Yeah, you're not the only one. It's been a bit busy for me, too. Uh, for those that haven't been watching the blog like they should, uh, Kevin is the newest blogger. I believe his first piece had to do with the shutting down of 3D, well, 3D Realms and Duke Nukem Forever, which uh, I haven't seen anything about it yet, but apparently there's supposed to be a press release about Duke Nukem sometime this week but I have a feeling it's probably dead unless Take-Two decides to do something with it. But speaking of the Global Geek News blog, there is a little bit of news about that. But first I want to say that there is regular updates once, twice a day now. I've gotten, oh, I don't know how many posts I've done in the past week. Any, everything from uh, a story regarding Twitter at replies that we're going to talk about to... Um, not letting your social networks screw up any lawsuits you have, and a lot of things in between, including Microsoft's new advertisement that hits towards the iPod. But as far as announcements go regarding the blog, within hopefully the next 72 hours, the Global Geek News blog will officially be listed on the Amazon Kindle store. So for those that happen to have an Amazon Kindle like myself, you'll be able to get the blog on the Kindle by subscribing to it. I don't know how much it's going to be. Normally, I think Amazon puts it at like $2 a month for a lot of blogs. Um, I would assume also you could get it if you have an iPhone or an iPod Touch and have the Kindle software on there. But that's my news regarding that. I have possibly some more news in the future regarding the podcast and potentially the blog but nothing I can announce just yet but anyway do keep an eye on that and if you do happen to have a Kindle or an iPhone or iPod Touch feel free to subscribe or just subscribe anyway with your RSS feeds or whatever so anyway I guess that's all the news I can think of unless you guys can think of anything else before we jump into the stories? Nope, I'm good. Okay. Well, I guess if I happen to think of something later, we can always shove that in there. But speaking of apps on mobile phones, apparently the freemium model is looking to predominate in the... Uh, mobile app world with revenues reaching $14 billion by 2014. This seems very, very, um, uh, very, very quick from the data points that we have. We've only 
started getting mobile apps uh, closer. Well, they started getting wide attention when the App Store launched for the iPhone. I'm surprised that they were able to extrapolate up all the way by 2014 with the, with the data that they have currently. The 14 billion by that point seems maybe a little bit inflated to me, but given how fast the iPhone has sold, and I don't know if they're including like iPod touches in here with this. I'm guessing they are, but plus the growth of Android, which within within this year they're saying is expected to have a 900 percent growth, and uh, when the Windows Mobile and the mobile marketplace that they have that's supposed to be coming out, which I believe, I think I saw this morning, they said that developers can now start playing with the mobile marketplace or something like that as part of like a beta program or whatever. But given all those and their popularity, and even BlackBerry's got an app store now, uh, I would I would say this is certainly possible. It just seems like a little bit on the large side to me. And this article is specifically talking about um, the freemium model, which means like the app itself is free or close to free, either, and then you you they make revenue from you by extra content or subscriptions. So, I mean, it, does the Kindle app cost money or is it free? I'm not sure. As as far as I'm aware, the Kindle app is free, uh, but then so that would basically be what this is talking about. Yeah, and the freemium models something I'm a huge fan of. I've never been a big fan of like advertising-based models and stuff, but free, the freemium model I'm a huge advocate of. But yeah, like the Kindle app is essentially the freemium model where they give away the main product for free, but then if you want something like books on the um, Kindle software or subscribe to blogs or whatever, then it's a subscription fee or a one-time fee or whatever past that. And essentially it cuts out the middleman. It cuts out Apple from getting a cut as to where then uh, Amazon gets a lot more of a cut than than they would otherwise. But it, it sounds like this is going to explode when they release OS um, 3.0 for the iPhone, which supports this sort of in-app purchasing natively. We'll see like extra levels for game games and stuff. Yeah, I, I think there's been some apps that have kind of done this already, although I don't know um, how closely uh, Apple's paid attention to them, but I, I think there's been some that have offered a, something free and then upcharged it so that the developers could end up getting more money and not having to give Apple their 30% cut. Well, it seems like this whole the marketplace is going to be restricted by two players. One, the network, and two, uh, the handset providers. Um, we've We've uh, I don't know if you guys have heard about uh, the Sling Player for the iPhone. Mm-hmm. Um, they have removed the ability to stream or the Sling over 3G or through Edge, and you can only do it through Wi-Fi because that's basically a limitation from Apple and from from AT&T saying that the network can't handle it. Yet uh, on BlackBerry on AT&T you can install the Sling Player that'll do the streaming over 3G. So with with these kind of restrictions, it, it could put the brakes on the growth uh, unless carriers and handset providers uh, become more open. Yeah, well, with that, I'm, I'm kind of... I think of if Apple had their way, it, it would work over 3G, right? I mean, it's basically AT&T came out and said, our network can't handle that. 
Well, I'm wondering if that's also if it's also a quality issue from Sling side, because if you're dealing with a network like a 3G AT&T network, who everybody knows tends to be kind of spotty, and you drop 3G every once in a while and everything, if that's happening and you're trying to stream stuff from your Sling box, that's going to end up with just a poor experience, and I I would think they're trying to prevent their customers from having that by just going with Wi-Fi only. Well, if you look at, as I said, the BlackBerry app on AT&T's network, they allow streaming through the 3G. So it's just that one handset, same network, same uh, application, um, is, is the only reason why they're restricting it, because it's in the Apple App Store. Yeah. Uh, it could be. I'm kind of, I'm kind of curious to hear how, just how well it works, especially for a thirty dollar application. Right, but uh, people pay thirty dollars for the BlackBerry version, but will they pay thirty dollars for the Wi-Fi only version? Uh, I, I hear a lot of people saying no. It's a crippled application for the same exact price. Uh, so that would be an example of where uh, a lot of that revenue could be reduced just because of the influence of the carrier. I don't. I don't think people will pay for that because, I mean, ultimately the use for that is like you're on the you're on the train or on a bus or you're in a hotel somewhere and you want to watch. But I mean, if you've got Wi-Fi, you're probably got a laptop with you. And I was seeing a lot of people on Twitter saying, "No, I'm not. I won't pay for this. Just use my computer." Exactly. Yeah, I, I never got into the whole uh, place shifting thing unless if I'm if I just have a file downloaded and I take it with me. I, I've never gotten a Slingbox, so I can't say how the experience with that is, but I do have a Sony location f- free player, and I was never that impressed with it. it. It was okay. I would use it to stream stuff to my PSP, but I, ne- I was never that impressed with it, and it never seemed like a real important thing to me. Most of my stuff is stuff that I w- would prefer to watch in HD or at least wait and download it after it's aired or whatever, or stream it or whatever. I, I've never been a one to really like the idea of place shifting it. I, I know a lot of people do. I'm just not one of them. Well, right now, you, you can't get... Uh, well, I could be wrong, but is there a Hulu player for the iPhone? No, I hear rumors of one coming out, but as of right now, there's nothing out there yet. Well, I'm sure somebody would pay what three bucks, five bucks to have some sort of Hulu application just uh, just to be able to watch shows whenever they want, um, but that might not be available because that's considered streaming also, and that wouldn't uh, probably work over, or AT&T wouldn't want that to work over their 3G network. And so that's, that's how I see that um, the carriers and the handset uh, providers are restricting uh, and will constrain this money and, uh, unless they get on board and uh, either uh, take part of the revenue and allow everything or restrict it to the point where you have to play by their rules. Yeah. Well, there is one way that I can think of to get around this whole thing is, if I remember right, and I think you have to have a jailbroken iPhone or whatever to do it, but I believe Orb has an iPhone application that you can stream stuff from your computer or whatever, whether it's live TV or stuff that you've taped or whatever over the internet to your iPhone, but again, I think you have to have a jailbroken iPhone for that, but I guess if that's the way you really want to 
consume your media, I don't think that would be the thing that would really bother you the most. There are also some utilities. If you have a jailbroken phone, there are some um, patches you can get that trick applications into thinking they're on Wi-Fi. So you can use Skype and um, Sling over 3G, and it works just fine. So there's, I don't, I don't think their technical argument holds up, especially when the phone comes with YouTube, which is, I'm sure, similar bitrate to the Sling player, and it works. It all, it all works fine. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, the question is, how many of those people that are doing stuff like that are cell phone only in their household? Uh, yeah, this next story is from the Center of Disease Control. Um, they just released a report on uh, wireless families, and they say one in five families are cell phone only. Yeah, the real strange part of the story is this, that it's coming from the Center of for Disease Control. That seems like a rather odd place for a study like this to be coming from. Yeah, I, I guess they're tracking to see if uh, people get cancer. I guess I don't, I don't know. There's then there's a number of different things in this story. Like apparently, more than three in five adults living with unrelated adult roommates were in households with only wireless telephones, and apparently this is the highest prevalence rate among the population of subgroups that were examined, as well as nearly two in five adults renting their homes had only wireless phones or cell phones. And adults renting their home were more likely than adults owning a house to be living in house households with only wireless telephones. And there's a number of other things, too. But I would, I would be among this group where cell phone only, unless if you count Skype, in which case I'm cell phone and Skype only. But, and that's just the way we've been for I don't know how many years now. It's got to be at least three three or four years, I think, since we gave up our landline. Yeah. When when I was uh, in school, I used to move almost every year from one apartment to the next, and so it wasn't advantageous to have a landline. Um, and especially when you have multiple roommates, uh, it makes sense. So if people want to call you, they'll call you. They don't call a location. Mm-hmm. Um so um, I'm also wondering, with all the triple play or all the different uh, VoIP line offers, if um, this is more showing, instead of an increase of wireless families, uh, a decrease in landlines. Well, I, th- I think landlines kind of reached saturation, reached their peak years ago, and it's just kind of a downhill market from there. With as big, with as many new cell phones as are coming out, with as many people are switching to VoIP, with somebody like Comcast who offer these like triple play packages, or some something even like Skype, which I believe is now the largest um, long distance provider now. Yeah, well, uh, I, I, I'm wondering if uh, this shift from landlines to cell phones. Um, is worrying anyone because um, a lot of, at least thinking anyway, is uh, at least in the the, the telcos. Um, I don't know if they're they're necessarily preparing for this huge shift. I think they're still basing a lot of their forecasting and uh, their business models around this this landline. Yeah, I think they're becoming less and less reliant on it, and they're putting more. 
uh, emphasis on services like DSL and stuff, but I, I think they kind of realize that it's starting to die off, at least with the younger generation. But I, I think they're going to, I think you'll see a real shift in what they're trying to focus on more and more in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think anyone, I don't think anybody, um, who's sort of in high school or going through college right now is going to have a landline like in their home. I mean, it makes sense in businesses, of course, but I mean, I don't have a landline and I probably never will in my house. Yeah, the only time we've ever really discussed getting a landline again is when for some reason Comcast is the internet is screwing up and we're thinking about DSL, but unfortunately DSL's only 1.5 megs megabit uh, connection around here compared to the 10 megabit or whatever that Quest has been advertising. So we've never really gone towards that. We've thought about it, but by the time you pay for both the DSL and the landline, it ends up being more expensive than Comcast is, which is hard to do. Yeah, well, it looks like um, T-Mobile is uh, expanding their their mobile repertoire, I guess in preparation of more people going wireless only. Yeah, uh, I guess this more has to do with Motorola than anybody else. But they're the they're the hand they're one of the largest handset manufacturers, or at least used to be. They used to have oh, they used to have 18 percent of the market share in terms of handset devices. Now they're down to six, but they seem to be have have come to the point where they're kind of trying to throw all their eggs into one basket with Android, and hopefully that'll be their savior. Otherwise, they probably won't be around too many more years. So this is essentially what Palm did with WebOS, except Motorola is betting it all on on Android. Yeah, essentially, last I knew, I think Motorola even hired like 500 Android programmers to go with this new strategy. And that's probably a good strategy. I mean, there's not really... there's There isn't going to be a market for these embedded operating systems anymore. I mean, if it's not if it's not open and there's no marketplace, no app store, I mean, people, I don't think there's, I don't think people want phones that can't do that. I think this all hinges on whether or not uh, Motorola can bring something new to the table. Uh, an Android is an Android is an Android, but what makes this set, this handset, different? And uh, that's what they're going to really need to focus on when they release this. Yeah, with Android expected to grow 900% just this year, I think it's going to, in the end, come down to the hardware, because essentially the software on most of them is going to be the same, unless they are able to have some of their own special features or whatever, which I believe Motorola is part of the Open Handset Alliance, so they can do that, but I I don't know, I, I think in the end it's going to come down to the how they can differentiate themselves in terms of hardware compared to everybody else. And I don't, I don't think they need to do something special just to stay alive. Because I mean, there's always going to be a market for like the lowest common denominator phone, which is what Motorola always has been. They've never been, they've never really had a high-end phone. I mean, I, I guess when the Razer was new, it was considered high-end. But if they can just make solid hardware running Android that works well, good battery life. I mean, if, if they just 
if they can get that right, then they they can at least survive because they can be like the zero dollar phone on on the contract. And that's what people usually go for. Yeah, the problem with Motorola is that they've always, like you said, they've they've gotten some winners, um, but they usually ride it to death. They'll stay on one model forever and change it a little and release it again, and um, everything just starts to look the same, and then everything thing starts to look old. Uh, the question is, will they be able to keep innovation going and keep that a steady release cycle in which they're current, they're they're uh, constantly injecting the market with fresh new uh, handsets? Yeah, that that's kind of always been my problem with Motorola. I mean, they make solid, durable, good handsets, but and and until I got my BlackBerry at work, all we've ever used is Motorola phones because we have the Nextel Direct Connect, so we're always stuck with phones like the i205, the i305, the i905, 805, 100, 1000, who knows, whatever it is. But essentially, there's not really a whole lot different between each phone. Some of them just look a, a little bit different, and some of them have a little bit of different functionality to them, but essentially, they all seem to be pretty much the same phone. It just kind of depends on whether you want like a clamshell phone or how much battery life you want or whatever, but there's really no difference between any of them. It's, they're all pretty much interchangeable. Mm, these yeah, phones are... Com- sorry. I was going to say that, that don't everyone forgets that uh, Motorola made the first iPhone. I'm not it's sure. deafening silence. Yeah, you must enlighten us. Yeah, I can't think of what you're the talking motor, about. The Motorola Rocker? The Motorola Rocker was the first iPhone. I don't know well, if it was a phone that had iTunes, if you want to go that far. I yeah, it, well, it was called the iPhone when, when, when people were saying mo- Apple's come out with a phone. The first one with iTunes, it was the Motorola Rocker. And it was but that, that thing was a huge disaster. Yeah. And so, once again, they're trying to be the first to market on something. Or be an innovator, and we see how that execution turned out. And I mean, the iPhone is not the iPhone because it has a touch screen or because it has song capabilities. I mean, the iPhone is the iPhone because the, soft, the core software and the operating system is so extensible and so um, it has such a good user interface and user experience that you, you plug it into your computer, everything syncs through iTunes, you unplug it, and you're good to go. And I mean, even when you're on the go, you can install applications. So, like, it's it's basically become your computer away from your computer, which is where smartphones are eventually going. Like, you, in the future, you should be able to tether a Bluetooth keyboard to your phone and just like set it up with a monitor and start typing on it. I mean, it's it's, it's your computing platform when you're away from your desk. Yeah, that that's kind of the way I am with my BlackBerry. I mean, my BlackBerry can't do a whole lot, but as long as I can do things like email, check Google Reader and stuff. I mean, that's really all I really need out of a phone is I just want to be able to keep up on things, including Twitter, which is apparently making a lot of stupid decisions lately. Uh, For those of you that haven't heard, it's been all over Twitter today, but late last night they decided to change the way they do at replies and kind of kill some of the functionality with it. If you go in, or at least if you used to be able to go into the settings for your account, there used to be an option where you could 
check to get at replies from the people that you follow when they're having a conversation with someone that you don't follow, someone that you don't have in common with them. Well, they apparently decided to remove that, and that just, they got a huge, huge backlash from that. I know I stayed up until midnight writing a blog post on it, which you can find on the Global Geek News blog. Um, also, I think I just realized, I think I forgot to mention, you can also follow along on the show notes at globalgeeknews.com. Anyway, so later on, t- so I think it was this afternoon, they came back and said, well, we're going to... We're sorry we didn't mean it like that, because the way they phrased it was that essentially the um, feature was too confusing for users, or that their users were too stupid to figure it out, essentially. Well, they came back and it's like, no, we didn't really mean that. We're going to give that functionality back to you, because there were still a lot of people that used it, especially Twitter Power users, but now they're doing it in this really convoluted way where apparently it's now going to be a natural part of Twitter, not something that you go into the settings and hit a checkbox. But it's based on around whether you hit the... when you're using the Twitter web interface, if you hit the reply button versus actually typing out at a person's name for whether or not other people get to actually see that message. and It, it just makes a whole lot of no sense, really. I, I can tell you why it doesn't make any sense. It's because it's a facade and they're lying. Um, the reason why, at least this is my opinion anyway, the reason why they removed this is to reduce load on their servers. If you looked last week when they released um, their uh, new proposal for API changes, one of them was uh, when you request a profile, um, you would have to do two requests, one for part of the profile and another one for the rest of the profile. And they said that they would raise the the API limit because of this change, and um, so I think they're just trying to reduce the the load on their servers um, because when you do an at reply, it has to propagate to everyone, and just removing this one feature, uh, which is at replies for everybody, they're significantly significantly reducing the load on their servers and the amount of traffic on their website, and I think that's part of the the reasoning for this change. I think this is a terrible idea. I mean, like, this is one of the fundamental ways in which people use Twitter, right? Like, you follow people you find interesting, and then when they have a conversation or when they at-reply someone that you don't know, you check out what that conversation was, and if you like the person, then you follow them too. So, like, if I can't see who these people are talking to, it just... Like, my, if I go to Twitter.com right now, my homepage is... Or my feed is just so stale. There's nothing there. It's just a bunch of... You know, status updates, basically. I think they just killed a really important part of the conversational aspect of Twitter. Yeah, and not only that, but I think that when they do something like that, essentially, the only way you have of finding out about new Twitter friends is if they're somebody you either know in real life or follow Friday. Which, I don't know about you, but... Lately, I've been getting a little bit annoyed with Fall Friday. I mean, I enjoy all the recommendations and stuff that I get, but I don't like being grouped in with just a bunch of people saying, hey, follow these people. I would prefer it if people said, hey, here's this person, or here's this two or three people. This is what they tweet about. This is why you should follow them. Yeah, I find Follow Friday pretty useless. I, I used it as a way of getting 
I guess I'm at around 4,200 followers or thereabouts now, and essentially that was kind of how I launched myself, was that up into where I was getting hundreds of followers a day, was I would just go through, especially on Follow Friday, and follow absolutely everybody possible, and hope they follow me back. If they don't, then I'll, a day later or whatever, I'd unfollow them. But that's just kind of how I used it to bump up my numbers, but that I don't think that's a normal person's way of using Twitter at all. Yeah, it's weird that they're doing these changes right when people are trying to learn the service uh, with this, you know, this Oprah influction. Uh, it, it sounds, it, 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 I think it's going to confuse people more. It was like, okay, I looked at it this day and it looked like this, and now I'm looking at it this day and it looks like this, and um, and having people who are new having to relearn. And uh, I'm not sure, but maybe you guys can tell me if it's rolled out to everybody, but I don't see a way to even turn this back on. Is that true? Uh, yeah, there's no way to turn it back on. Yeah, as far as I know, there's not. And, and this isn't the first feature that they've killed recently. It wasn't but a couple of weeks ago they announced they were killing the auto-follow ability. So, and for those that aren't familiar with the auto-follow, I think it was a part of everybody's profile for a very short time. But then essentially they've took it off of everybody's profile, and it had to be, and it was something that you had to actually write Twitter and request that you would have this functionality turned on, so that whenever somebody follows you, you'll follow them back. And that was something that they also took out a couple of weeks ago, and they just seem to be taking out more and more functionality with nothing to replace it. Yeah, I agree. But anyway, I'm can't seem to figure out a transition to the next story, so let's just jump right into it. France has apparently... Speaking of taking things away... Yeah. Uh, there you go. There's the transition. Yeah. France wants to take away your internet if you uh, download copyrighted files three different times. Uh, France has officially passed the uh, three strikes anti-piracy law. Originally they didn't get it passed, which kind of surprised everybody, and now it's passed overwhelmingly, but what's really going to be interesting about this story is the European Union has taken a major stance against the three strikes law, and it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out between the two of them, because basically, as I understand it, the EU seems to have final say on everything. Yeah, this is going to be a giant um, testbed to see how other countries are going to implement some of the same things. Because I know there was one in, um, not Australia, but uh, where the Kiwis live? New Zealand. New Zealand, that they were going to try to do something like this. Um, and then that got shelved and tabled. And I think even here in the United States, it's at least been discussed. And uh, now in France it passed, and we'll see exactly uh, if, it, if it seems like it's working out for them or have, uh, have the opposite effect. I'm not sure how anyone using any sort of sense of reason could think this is a good idea because, I, I mean, I'm sure it has very noble um, roots in trying to prevent piracy. Sure, great, but it's going to be abused, obviously. And, I mean, this is going to end up being like the DMCA where a company just says, hey, YouTube, take this down right now, and they go, okay, and they take it down. Even if it's totally fair use, even if it's, you know, some video of a cat playing the piano. Like it, it, these these companies are just going to be sending out massive 
notices to these ISPs saying, hey, we think this person with this IP downloaded this. And even if it's totally false and you get you get accused three times, you're cut off. So, I mean, I just, this, uh, this is inconceivably bad. Yeah, that, that's been my problem with it all along is there seems to be no, basically no trial or anything that goes with this that actually proves that you were the one that downloaded anything. And France actually, if I recall, isn't the first one to do this. I believe uh, the first one to adopt the three strikes was Taiwan. But yeah, I mean, that, that's really my issue with it is as long as... I, I would think that this would be... I would be a little bit more inclined to say okay if there was some kind of a system where you could appeal whether any accusations against you. I think if I if there was a way that I could fight it, like some sort of a special court or something like that, it would be different, but I don't want to just be accused three times and then cut off, because as everybody knows, and I've publicly stated on this podcast before, I am a pirate. I will always be a pirate. I don't care what they say. I don't care if they disconnect me. It'll still happen. I have a couple questions. Uh, I'm, uh, I might have missed it in the article. But is this ban from the ISP a lifetime ban? Like, if you, the three strikes? And two... Does the ban follow you? Like, can you jump to another ISP, or is it you're just cut off from the internet? Where the article the article says that you're terminated for up to one year, and but during that time you have to keep paying your bill. So it strikes me that this should be something that's sort of agreed upon at an ISP level and not like a law. And so the ISPs that want to implement this can. Yeah, I I don't know. It, I, I would assume that you could probably jump from one ISP, ISP to the next, but I guess it would probably be just a good idea to have some roommates that after you're, you've hit your th- limit of three, then transfer the internet into their name and just keep going round and round every couple of years as necessary. Well, you're, you're saying that it would be up to the ISP, but it sounds like it would behoove the ISP. If the customer's going to keep paying, why not reduce the load on your network? by kicking them off and still getting the money. True. Well, I I didn't pay too much attention to the fact that you would have to keep paying, but... And that that seems the part that seems to be the worst of it. If I'm disconnected and I'm not being able to use the service, I shouldn't have to keep paying. I know uh, when, like, you hit the limit at Comcast or whatever and you did for... and you hit it, like, twice in a two months in a row or whatever and they disconnect you for a year you you don't keep paying for it you're just plain old disconnected for a year well maybe it's different in their country because um i think at least most of the isps here there are no contracts um i think it's very rare that you have to sign a contract to get broadband in, in, in the united states yeah, that's what I enjoy about Comcast is I've been able to disconnect and reconnect at pretty much any time, and, and there's never been a contract or anything. That's just, and that's what I wish would be the case with my cell phone because I'm tired of the BlackBerry I have. I want something else. But, what are the laws like in Canada? Um, we have pretty poorly managed um service providers. Like we don't have. At this time, we really only have two cell phone carriers. We have three, but two of them 
there's two that are CDMA and they share a lot of towers and there's one GSM carrier. So, yeah, that doesn't work out so well. Our contracts are usually three years for cell phones instead of two. And um, our, a lot of our ISPs do contract deals, but you can also just um, buy off contract, I think. I'm not sure. It's it's not it's not ideal. Not ideal to buy off contract? No, I mean, I just our whole situation in general is not ideal because... Oh. I'd really rather not be on a three-year contract for a cell phone. That seems that seems a bit long. Well, it seems to me like you guys have a major lack of competition up there. Seems to be the real problem. It seems to be it's you get Rogers and get screwed with them, and you don't have that much in the way of an option to go with anybody else. Yeah, especially because they're they're the only company who has the GSM technology. So like. They're the only ones who can carry the iPhone. Even if you want to take it onto a different carrier, you can't. There's nowhere else to take it. You have to go through them or go through no one. Yeah, there's a lot of times when I kind of hate what we have around here, but at least we have some competition, whether it's AT&T, Nextel, uh, Sprint, Verizon, T-Mobile, whatever. Uh, at least we have competition, so we're certainly better off than you are. I think if some of the um, companies from here in the U.S. were to move up there, which I don't think would be that big of a deal, especially for companies like Verizon, I think it would be better for Canadians and better for the companies, too. Yeah, we do need more competition, and I'm I'm a little surprised that um, our government hasn't, you know, stepped in earlier to sort of help regulate things, because they have had to do that before. So, I mean, it's not... It's not easy to set up a cell network in Canada. We have a lot of um, terrain and just a sheer amount of land to cover where it's not even going to be profitable because there aren't a lot of people in certain areas, but you still have to have coverage there. So, I mean, I do understand there are a lot of costs, but uh, it's mostly an issue of the bigger companies buying up the smaller ones before they can even get started, which has happened a few times recently. Yeah. Wow. Well, maybe for internet stuff, we all just need a, somebody at the FTC that's willing to be a little bit more pro-consumer. And it looks like we might have that person in John Leibowitz, who apparently says that the FC, FTC, and he's the chair of the FTC, that they, may, that they might jump into the middle of the whole net neutrality debate in favor of the consumer. Oh yeah, this this sounds like um, the the whole change in the administration is uh, going everywhere, and that they're willing to uh, stick up for the little guy. Oh shoot! I just realized we skipped a story. Oh no, socialism. Yeah, well, we'll come back to the other story. But as far as this FTC uh, story goes, this guy, I I think that he could be better than what we've had before. I mean, before, the closest thing we've had to a real stance on this was when the FCC decided to jump all over Comcast for the uh, throttling and stuff that it was doing. Although I still don't think this guy is going to go as far as some people would like. It says that he's apparently in favor of um, like usage caps and tiered service pricing and stuff. Assuming they don't gouge the consumer, and that and make sure that if there are extra fees and 
stuff like that, as long as the consumer is aware of them before they show up on their bill, he seems to be fine with that. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of hard. I don't want to step over step over Kevin, but... Um, I... I, I um, I like where he's going. I, I think he says he'll jump in when it's needed. Um, the question is, will they grant him the power to do so? And um, knowing the administration that he'll get those rights, um, he, he seems to say that uh, he's going to be pretty laissez-faire as long as he's not needed, but um, uh, he's for competition, and I just hope that he's smart enough to do what he needs to do and not interfere when it's needed. Yeah, I, I'm hoping he'll put some kind of a stance up there. As long as there's companies like Time Warner Cable that are wanting to essentially screw their customers, I, I'm hoping that he'll be there to fight for them. I'm just kind of curious what his idea of acceptable usage caps and tiered services are. I think it, if he states what his idea of of an acceptable limit for those things is, I think we'll have an idea of just how good he might be for the internet. Yeah. I, I, I know they said that he's with he's been with uh, the, the FCC for a while, since 2004. Um, I know this would probably open up people to scrutinize his track record to see exactly what kind of person he is. Yeah. This, this should be interesting. I'm kind of curious to see what happens with this. I don't think there's a whole lot needed right now since Comcast seems to be behaving for the most part and Time Warner seems to be backing off on all of its plans to bleed their customers dry. So I'm kind of curious to see how long it's going to take for him to find something that he needs to jump in the middle for. Yeah. Well, I think everybody's been put on notice not to do anything to prevent um, the need for him to jump in, and I, I like the little, you know, shot across the bow, little warning saying, you know, play, play nice. Yeah, it it'll be interesting to see what happens. But speaking of online restrictions, apparently there is a new bill that's working its way through Congress, where apparently you can get major fines and up to two years of jail time if you happen to be trolling somebody on the internet. Yeah, I don't want to be insensitive, but I, I'm thinking that a law like this is not really needed. If you're on MySpace and someone's harassing you on MySpace, block them. If they still harass you, just get off MySpace. It's the... It sounds like, it sounds like you, could, you can just move to something else. You it's not necessary for someone to be on MySpace or any other network where you can be harassed. Um, if you get emails, you can block them. If they make a new account and they block them, you could always you could always uh, go to the authorities and say, "Hey, I'm being harassed." I mean, there's still laws for that. Uh, I think um, harassment in general should not be allowed, um, but passing specific laws saying you can't be harassed on the internet, I think, is a little stupid. Yeah, it sounds like it might be more appropriate if it was for children. Like most sites, most uh, social network sites require you to put in your age when you sign up. So if this could like only be applied to those who said they were 13 or under, 
I think that would make sense because there's been a few cases where like kids just don't sometimes have the maturity to deal with um, these types of things. So I, I would be okay with this if it only applied to children. But well, then that like goes back to their everyone. parents. That goes back to general internet education. If if someone can't handle being on the internet, you shouldn't let them be on the internet. I understand that the internet's kind of like the wild wild west where there's a lot of rules. Um, that aren't followed, um, and uh, you can basically do anything you want. Um, and before you would, should allow your kids to be on the internet, you should prepare them for that. I think a lot of this is a lot of places online are pretty much self policing, whether it's blogs or forums or chat rooms or whatever. There's usually some kind of a moderator that can get rid of the trolls before they become too big of a problem. Usually they can start a little bit of something, but usually they're banned before they can ever really get a whole lot going. So, really, I don't think this is too much of a problem. And like you said, you can always just go and file harassment charges on a person. And essentially, I think this is just kind of a um, creating new laws because you're too lazy to enforce the current laws kind of thing. I mean, harassment lawsuits work just fine and you don't need to create a whole nother law just for this that I'm sure in and of itself probably won't be enforced and if it does from the apparent vague language in the bill it's probably going to be abused and used to essentially censor people and go after people that are essentially just trolls of the internet that we've all just kind of come to accept that we know they're there, and there's not much we can do about it other than don't feed the trolls. I mean, there's we, there's just a lot of room here for people to overreact and cause more of an issue than there needs to be. Also, what if this is one-to-many and not necessarily one-to-one? What if you take someone who is highly controversial uh, to some people and might be offensive to some people uh, who's just broadcasting this out Blanketly, let's say, um, uh, let's say a Howard Stern, if you will, just uh, an internet version. And I don't see anything in this bill that says that it has to be a one-on-one situation. It could be one-to-many. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems to me like they're trying to make it as to where any disagreement you can have with somebody, if you uh, go a little bit farther than just a respectful argument they just about almost classified as hate speech just about as i mean apparently it's meant to prevent people from using the internet to coerce intimidate harass or cause substantial emotional distress to a person i mean essentially that's you can pretty much do that with just about anything mhm and we and i think most people have kind of been these troll types at one point. I know I have. True, true. But um, it, it's trying to police stupidity, and that's going to be impossible. Yeah. Uh, I don't think you can police stupidity, I, although I am kind of a believer in killing the stupid, just, you know, basic... Uh, evolutionary survival of the fittest idea. Let the smart people survive and get rid of the idiots. Yeah. I, I always said that there should be like a factory 
that take stupid people in and then convert them into energy. And the good thing is that we wouldn't have to push people there because they would go voluntarily because they're stupid. Yeah, that sounds like a pretty good idea and sounds kind of environmentally friendly too. But uh, I think I think that with as vague as this is, I think there's just a lot of room for abuse. And I think in the end, that's probably the only thing that this law would be used for is abuse. I don't think anybody would really use it for what it's intended to because there's already laws in place that can essentially do the same thing. Yeah. Kevin, do you have any laws like that in uh, in Canada? Um, I'm sure we do. Yeah, we have anti-harassment laws. This, this sounds like they're just trying to transfer what already exists to be more enforceable um, on the internet, which is not an easy task. I mean, there's very little accountability for who people say they are, what age they say they are, you know, so something like this needs to be written if it's going to be written, it needs to be written by somebody who knows the internet very well and knows the technical language to make this you know, bulletproof Yeah, either that or educate every single judge that this will come in front of to be able to use uh, their discretion exactly who should get prosecuted and who shouldn't because um, mm-hmm. once those precedents are set um, sorry, precedents I pronounced that terribly um, you know it probably wouldn't be a big deal but it I have no faith in <laughs> the um, technical expertise of most of the people in the legal system yeah unfortunately I agree with you yeah, I, I have no faith in the legal system I, there's too many technicalities and too many judges that don't have a clue what they're dealing with and then when you go with a jury you're faced with the odds of getting at least a couple stupid people on the jury and it's I have never used the legal system other than a speeding ticket that I've had and I still ended up getting screwed just because the judge and the cop were in on it together yeah legal battles um, are always subjective and depending on the the, the, whether the moon is full, the the speed of the wind, or someone's morning coffee, it can change the ruling on any case. Yeah. Well, speaking of rulings on cases, apparently the EU has decided to hit Intel with a $1.45 billion fine for, I guess it's antitrust violations and anti-competitive practices. Yeah, I would like to first say that uh, I am an employee of AMD uh, in full disclosure and that uh, I will weigh in on this just slightly, but my views do not reflect that of my company, just of myself. Nice disclosure. So, um, yeah, this has been rumored for, I don't know, I think over a month now that the different countries and stuff were in discussions of just how big the fine should be and I believe this is basically going to take like half a year's worth of profits for them to or it's going to take away half of a year's worth of profits for Intel and I guess they're going to appeal it but in the meantime they still have to stick over a billion dollars into a bank account just in case the appeal fails yeah, this investigation, um, even I didn't realize how long it was going. It's gone from nine years, I believe, uh, 
seven or nine years, something like that. And so, um, they, they've been, they, they've really looked at a lot of evidence to come to their conclusion. And I think, um, uh, everyone was shocked, um, about the amount of money, but I think it sends a, sends a clear message that, um, they, they want their, uh, they want the people to have the choice to choose. Yeah. Well, so it appears that Intel, like Intel's, been causing more trouble than we re- than we realize. Like they, it's it's come up recently that they were the ones behind the whole um, Vista Home Vista Premium Capable sticker uh, fiasco because they wanted their Intel graphics card to be labeled as um, Vista Premium capable when it really probably shouldn't have been. So, you know, they they were the cause of that little headache. And now now it's been coming out that they were paying companies uh, and OEMs to use Intel and not to use AMD. And it wasn't just that they were creating, you know, uh, discounts, volume discounts. They were specifically paying off companies to not use AMD or to delay the rollout of AMD PCs. So, I mean, things like that aren't really appropriate when you have a high market share because that's, you know, essentially non-competitive behavior. Yeah, apparently, so this is the third um, judgment against them from anti-competitive behavior. Um, First it was Japan in 2005, then Korea in 2008, and now this. You'd think they'd learn their lesson by now. At least Microsoft seems to have. Yeah, well, um, uh, it seems that they said that, um, that that they have their they don't believe that they have inflicted any harm to customers. So um, we'll just have to, I guess, wait and see exactly how they respond to this. Yeah, um, I mean, it's it, this is con- this is complicated because. They can't just say that that it, it's going to be hard to. It's, I'm surprised that they proved anything because Intel's Core 2 lineup came out, and I mean, it totally dominated the scene. And it wasn't just because they were cheap. I mean, they were they were reasonably priced, and they were very good performance. So I mean, it wasn't like they were gouging customers, and they they weren't really exhibiting the characteristics of of a monopoly. But apparently. I mean, this stuff is all behind-the-scenes stuff that we don't get to see, and it seems like they were really trying to con- control the, the back channels of supply. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm really kind of curious to see if this does anything to spur anything for any possible antitrust lawsuits or whatever here in the U.S. I, that's what I'm curious to see. If, I mean, if the EU is going after them, there's certainly got to be a case there, especially when they release a 500-page document about it, but I, I'm kind of curious to see if now this is going to come here to the States. The EU, no comment. <laughs> the EU tends to have nice um, sentiments towards consumers, which is good because we're all consumers, but they they also tend to over overplay things. Like, they're, they're, they're currently... Uh, investigating this Microsoft thing because they they're they're still bundling Internet Explorer with Windows. I mean, it's like what this this has been going on for like 20 years now or what? Like, I, I think Microsoft is allowed to bundle its own web browser with Windows because if they didn't, how would you go download another web browser? Yeah, I I think that's a major issue. I mean, they do great 
stuff for consumers sometimes, but at least when it comes to Microsoft, they tend to have, seem to have gone a little on the overboard side, whether it's bundling Windows Media Player, Internet Ex- Exploder, or what have you. I mean, that's... If you don't bundle in Internet Explorer, that essentially gives you two problems. If you bundle it, but also include other browsers like Firefox and um, Opera and Safari and Chrome and whatever, you're essentially having to almost support these other people's products because... And also, where would it end? At that point, where do you draw the line? I mean, should they include VLC? Should they include Pigeon or Digsby? Like, where where does it stop when you when you start going into that territory? Yeah, and I think part of the problem is security-wise, because if these browsers that you're bundling with it have security holes that aren't fixed by the time they get to the by the time they go through packaging and get to the consumer and everything, and they can have they might be old versions. And they have no way of patching them through Windows Update, right? Because they don't they, manage the code for that. That's that's not their code. I mean, what what can they do? Yeah, and the other thing about it is, if you don't bundle a browser with it, period, exactly how are you going to get on the internet? I don't think anybody seems to have thought that through real well. FTP, <laughs> FTP somewhere, and download Firefox. You know, honestly, Internet Explorer 8 is not that bad from a technical standpoint, and there's no reason they shouldn't be able to include that in their operating system. Because, I mean, it, Firefox comes with Ubuntu, and Firefox has a license agreement. And if you buy, if you get uh, Mac OS 10, it comes with Safari. So, I mean, the, the EU tends to pick on some people unfairly, Microsoft being one of them. Yeah. Yeah, there's not one OS that I believe that, that is currently shipping that does not have... Uh, a, a browser built into it. Well, even things like the I even look at phones. Three have uh, have its own browser. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, should should the EU be forcing Apple to allow third party browsers in their app store? Because there's no way they're doing that right now. Right. Well, um, at least they don't have a browser on the Xbox. At least they have that going for them. Yeah. Nothing uh, to worry about there. I don't know. I'm still holding out for the day that they're going to get a browser on there. Or at least I hope they'll get something on there. I mean, I don't really need it. I've got more computers than I can handle, plus a uh, PS3 that I can browse on, and a PSP and everything, which the browser on the PSP is just awful. I mean, the PS3 browser isn't that much better, but at least you can get... It's, at least it's got, like, the latest Flash. You can watch Hulu and stuff on it. But the PSP is just absolutely awful. Yeah. I, I, I think we all agree that um, choice is good, and uh, consumer choice is is what uh, is the message here. And um, even if, um, no matter what, I mean, people should have the choice of what they want to buy. Yeah. Well, when it comes to regulation and stuff like this, I think there's a line that you can go up to, but when you start to cross that line, in the end it's going to be bad for consumers who are the people that you're actually trying to help instead of hurt. Right. But Anyway, that was our last story, so I guess we'll go ahead and wrap this up. Don't forget to check out the show notes at globalgeeknews.com for all this, for I think pretty much all the stories we talked about. There were a couple of rabbit holes that we chased that I don't have links for, but 
all of our main stories are up there, as well as all of our previous shows. Don't forget to subscribe to the RSS feed for the show. I never, I never remember to promote it, but subscribe to the RSS feed for the show, which I believe is is in the actual post itself. If you click the RSS thing up in the browser, that'll get you the it for the blog, not for the actual show itself. So make sure to do that. Don't forget to check out the Global Geek News blog. We are posting content regularly. Again, we should be on the Kindle store, I would hope, by the end of the week. Um, and, of course, our new writer there, Kevin Hustler. And we have one other new writer there, but he hasn't posted anything yet, and I'm not sure when he will. When he does, I'll talk about that then. I know he, for quite a while, has wanted to come on the show as well. So once that, once he starts posting a little bit, then I will certainly bring him on the show as well. Um, and if you would like to write for the Global Geek News blog, drop me an email at pcnerd37 at globalgeeknews.com or you can go on the blog and search for the post regarding the my desire to find more writers for the um, site. But yeah, if you want to write for us, drop me a line, tell me that you're interested give me some examples of some of your writing and stuff, and we'll see what we can work out. Um, I think that's everything in terms of the site. Oh, and don't forget to leave comments. Either put them in the comments or drop me a line, pcnerd37 at globalgeeknews.com. Any uh, any requests you have for the show, any ideas, what do you like, what, do you don't, what, what don't you like, what have you. And you can always follow me on Twitter, and you can even Twitter some some of your ideas to me. I am PCNerd37 on Twitter. Uh, Wesley is Wesley83 on Twitter, right? That's correct. And Kevin is Kev Leviathan on Twitter, I believe. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I will also, in the bottom of the um, post for the show, there is everybody's link to their Twitter. And, of course, you can follow me on FriendFeed. I am PCNerd37 on there as well. And I guess that wraps it up for episode number 24. We will see you, I assume, hopefully next week. Later.